Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx Magazine. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Today's story is Goddess of Mercy, Quitting Time in Shanghai, written and narrated by Allie C. Hall. Settle in and enjoy. Goddess of Mercy, Quitting Time in Shanghai. The bargaining was slow going fun my last afternoon in Shanghai, China, 101 degrees and desperately muggy in the elegant tchotchke shop of a man whose name I wish I could remember. Because the air in his place was close, so very close, his wife gave me a wood-ribbed fan etched with a classic Chinese mountain scene. Not to be overlooked, they stood to gain 1200 won, $180 or thereabouts, for two figurines we had been negotiating over for 40 minutes, each its own five-inch representation of Kuan Yin, goddess of mercy. Using a luminescent yellow teapot as bait and switch, I bargained them down to 1,141. A bit more of the game might have further lowered the price, yet I felt it bad karma to nickel and dime over five bucks, especially as over the course of the 40 minutes, only one other shopper had peeped in. Plus the fan. The instant I agreed to buy both Kuan Yin statues, all the enjoyment went out of the bargaining. I was left feeling mm, jumpy. Perhaps I really did want the yellow teapot. Nah, I own two yellow teapots. For that matter, I had three Kuan Yin statues. That said, shopaholism was not one of my isms. I'd been sober for 27 years all the while studying the underpinnings of childhood abuse that led to addiction. My food addiction was less clear. I hadn't made myself vomit for 30 years, and for 10 of those, weighed on the slim side of normal. Then I had kids. Totally worth it, and it was hardly them who put every bite into my mouth. On that Kuan Yin afternoon, I was a flabby 185 pounds, standing a mere 5 foot three inches tall. Placing my acquisitions into my bag, I was aware of that bingy bouncing feeling in my tummy. I interpreted it as anticipation. I had a bit of money, not extravagant, that I was going to spend and safely. I stepped from the store to the tree-lined sidewalk of a wide boulevard abutted by department stores and apartment buildings. There were a few cars and fewer pedestrians. I was accosted by a middle-aged Chinese woman with button black eyes. She wore pink pants and had the professionally pushy air that instantly gave her away as a tout. I was not ready to examine my feelings of superiority around a tout. 
Instead, I retreated to my traditional rationalizations. Touts act as if potential marks had not the smarts to discern that merchants gave touts a kickback or worse, embroiled victims in a scam. Additionally, touts earn a percentage of the costs. Rather than spend $150 gambling, for example, I want to know in advance and for certain my end of the cost. I would spend that same amount, $150, I consider it large, on a sea bass dinner for two, a ticket to Cirque du Soleil. The tout in question, pink pants and vivid black eyes, did not introduce herself. Well, she might have. I knew Zippo, Shanghaiese. I refused the store she suggested, would not respond even. She kept at it. When I finally caved, I should not have, but please. Her continuance would have cheesed off the goddess of mercy. After I said, leave me alone, I knew I'd blown it big time. She would never forswear me. The tout stopped to greet a fellow citizen. I slipped away. She tracked me down five minutes later in a large corner store, comparing one of my Kuan Yin statuettes to one of theirs. Mine had more supple lines. Theirs was half the cost. I was weighing the idea that I hadn't got the better deal when the tout found me. I gave up. Who knew? The result might surpass the thrill of purchasing an additional giga. It might become the ultimate souvenir. A story. Never shop the last afternoon of a trip. Taking my hand, the tout toured me through the humidity to a different teaware shop. An older man with a smidgen of a cap and winning smile made me a cup. Guilt brewed in my heart as I drank the warm liqueur, not quite as warm as the weather. If there was something I did not need, it was another teacup or pot. In my 20s, I lived in Japan for three years. When the time came for me to head stateside, it cost more to send home my assemblage of pottery, $800, than it did me. I got some cheap one-way in Hong Kong, $237. Decades later, there I was in Shanghai with two Asians waiting on me as I drank from a cup I had no intention of buying. When I was traveling young and stupid, I loved that power. I didn't think white. I thought, wheel and deal, baby. At Hemina Hemina, years over 50, I could not ignore the self-reproach my heart steeped in. A hasty Caucasian departure. The tout followed. She noticed my eyes barely linger on discomforting watercolors, and we were in that gallery, she and I, following the flowing persimmon-colored pantsuit of the well-preserved owner up those stairs to a long, dark, attic-like space. Thank God it was air-conditioned. Five-foot-high stacks of unframed canvases pressed against the walls, leaving only enough of an aisle for two small women and a podgy imperialist to pass single file. Most of the canvases showed hand-painted versions of Western classics, Monet's haystacks, Van Gogh's vase with 15 sunflowers. There were more of those disconcerting watercolors, some depicting a Buddha's head, a few of my favorite lady, Kuan Yin, swathed in her traditional white. The work that caught my eye featured a Betty Boop-style individual miserably smoking a cigarette. Its gloomy humor would do wonders for my guest bathroom. 
Seeing my interest in Depressive Betty, the shop owner found an additional piece featuring the same Betty character, this one lounging whorishly on an Art Deco couch. I was drawn in yet hesitant to buy. The perfect position to bargain from. The owner started at 881, about 140 bucks for each canvas. Now, 280 smackaroonies wasn't nothing to me. On the other hand, it would not be food taken from the mouths of my children. Ten minutes later, we had an agreement, both boops for 551, right down to $80 or so. The shop owner ran my visa. The machine made that clunky sound they make when you run the stripe on the wrong side. I worried that the pink panted tout tucked it up as the shop owner reran my visa card. She claimed it ran fine. Without printing out a receipt, she wrote one, wrote one? As the tout, still with the jawing, rolled the canvases and propelled me out the door. Click and lock. Back on the Evermuggy Avenue, the tout and I were in front of an electronics store she said was hers, at least. I'm relatively sure she said it was, again, my non-existent Shanghaiese. Even before the tout plied my hand and gestured to the store, I knew it was coming and I was bear trap ready. No tip. Yet I tipped waitstaff readily, as I would a concierge who might direct me toward the best place to get Italian food. What was the difference between paying them and paying a tout a percentage of the purchase total for her services? A percentage. The tout said, pay me 550 yuan. The proposal of a tip equivalent to the full amount was so outrageous that I didn't bother with a counteroffer. She said, you come with me. No, you come with me. Her eyes held the same got my mark gleam as when I initially glanced at the art. I could all but hear the flat clunk rejecting my visa, which the tout underscored by insisting that I had not yet paid. She called to someone inside her shop, a time-worn man. He sided with her. We were in the Fufara, described as a warning in every lonely planet. Why did I not return to the persimmon and bang on the door, challenging the well-preserved to explain whatever swindle she and the tout had concocted? Herein, we come to the primary task of a good tout. Keep the mark riled up. She hopped up and down. She and her man blocked my passage. They grabbed at my purchases, pulled at them. Physical aggression was not part of the script. I wasn't truly concerned. I was in a movie. I pushed the canvases toward the tout. Take them! Her eyes turned to buckshot. Pay me money. They grabbed my arms. Nothing in my imagination prepared me for out-and-out -out violence. In an instant, the light-hearted, even silly story I was hoping to relay once home repositioned. I reacted as I had to the abuse in my family growing up. Iced over shock. Why shock as a child after so many instances? Followed by rebellious grit. One of Kuan Yin's titles was She Who Perceives the Sounds of the World. In front of the small number of people hustling past, not about to intercede, I threw back my head, screaming, Help! Help me! Which I never did as a child. Not once. I screamed for what seemed like a while, realistically, probably four seconds. Help me! 
Five teens were advancing up the pavement, possibly 16 years old, school uniforms of navy blue jackets and skirts, their hair pulled back by sweet white bows. The tout yacked out her side. As her man nodded vigorously, she said in English, she knows English and me only a little. The tout pinched the air as if she wished it were me. I knew exactly what she meant. I was not willing to own it. The young leader asked me, do you have receipt? An immediate presentation? A nervous appraisal? The young leader said, this receipt lacks shop owner stamp. You have need credit card receipt. The strange noise when she ran the card. No visa receipt. Click. Lock. I abandoned the jury of my juniors. The tout and her man followed me along the sidewalk, pestering me in stereophonic sound. I besieged a security guard who impatiently referred me down the way to a crossing guard who, bored, referred me across the thoroughfare to a Loomis truck-looking police van staffed with full-fledged officers. I was sure their authoritarian presence would scare off the tout. Ha! I say to you, ha! She told her tale as robustly as I waved my receipt. A secondary officer, he spoke the most English, conveyed, sad-faced, that lacking the visa receipt, I was Taurus Lady Screwed, verified when the senior officer stepped in. He not quite poked me in the sternum. You, he said in English, pay her. I already did. Captain Preemptive departed. Guess it was quitting time in Shanghai. A group of about 15 people had gathered under a sparse tree. Everyone had an opinion, and I understood not one word. Left in charge was the same junior officer with the sad face. We communicated through Google Translate. The tout kept up her eminently audible complaints interspersed with, she speak English and I, virtuous air pinch, only a little. I said, how is English a benefit? We're in China. I was in China. Slow going fun, nothing. This may have been my movie. This was how she made her money. In contrast to my realization at we're in China, Sympathetic ahs and ooms vibrated through the throng. The tout yanked her man from the crowd. As he gave testimony, I googled, he wasn't even there, and showed the officer who slashed his fingers sharply at the old guy, get out of my sight, less sad-eyed at having someone to be mean to. The man vamoosed. The Greek chorus huzzahed. Giddy, lemony ribbons of thought wound through my brain. They are on my side. The story keeps getting better. Should I ever direct a crowd scene in a Brecht play? The comrades now surrounding me thrust forward a 30-something man whose photogenically frizzled shoulder-length hair accompanied a flawless American accent. I'm a shopkeeper. If you don't have the cash, you can run your visa at my place. Uh, I was up for only one scam a day. Besides, as I told him, I have money. I won't pay twice, that's all. The voices of the people then urged a young woman to participate, her blouse the white of a Kuan Yin swirl. As serious as her big round glasses, she said, can you confirm by online that credit card has indeed charged? I am iPhone's Job. Thus did I avail myself of an unpredicted benefit of marriage, as advantageous as filing jointly. I texted my husband for tech advice.
He and our children were at our Airbnb. In less than a minute, Cliff responded, no church yet, what's going on? Which was when the police car arrived. That is a police car. I said it out loud and began crying. There never was a script. There had been no movie. There was nothing beyond the high, like the part of the binge where I got to eat anything and everything before the situation hardened into the reality of sticking my finger down my throat. And now, a policeman shambled towards us, his shirt too large across the shoulders and so hanging limp, yet carrying with it true power. A page of my brain continued to believe this street opera was some yada Three Stooges routine, boink, boink. No one really got hurt, but they did. See, the Three Stooges really did poke each other's eyes and whammo each other's head. I knew the whole time what she meant by she speaks English and I only a little. She meant she is white. She is rich. The woman in the modest blouse said, please go with him to police station. I am not getting in that car. Here, take the money. Openly weeping by this time, I pulled up my traveler pouch. O's and mmms from the onlookers. Their empathy was parent, comforting, useless. The benevolent lady said, you can go with him. It is a safe country. At that point in time, it did not feel like a safe country. The ignoble end to my great story. The officer slipshotted away. The tout was again doing her bit, bringing to my awareness the fact that she disappeared when the officer arrived. Scaredy cat. A text from Cliff. Our visa showed no charges. I could not reason how in the blue fuck their con worked. Make me pay twice? The visa decried that. Perchance they were rotten con artists. I announced that as my card had not been charged, I did not own the paintings, and I did. I made an emperor's gesture, bequeathing the roll of canvases to he of the cool tresses. I asked him to return them to the gallery. He appeared equal parts exasperated and astounded by my sheer balls. Next, I asked the woman in white to convey to the tout my apologies for our misunderstanding, scoring big points with the assembled. I was so full of crap. The tout bitched me out. Her supporters pat-patted her as I did what I should have done as soon as the story started getting great. I left. On the way to our Airbnb, I continued to visualize the officer in the two-big shirt approaching. At last, I let in how I understood to the fine print the license afforded my white skin. Boldly assuming that privilege well could have been what kept me from being arrested. I relayed the affair to my family as a big joke and went about packing, quietly binging every intricate chocolate we'd purchased as gifts because I was a racist. Not unrelated was an urge I hadn't had to battle in years to binge and purge. We had a substantial farewell meal. I ate so much that my upper back hurt. I was past tasting food. My thoughts resigned to what else I could eat. I didn't make myself vomit. I allowed my disgust at my racism to morph, spending the night and the next day, including the flight home, focusing on false limb flashbacks about how close I came to being imprisoned halfway around the world in a country where I knew no one could barely say hello, plunged fully 
into addiction. To reiterate, I am an alcoholic. I never torpedoed a relationship or occupation due to drinking, never went homeless, only three times behaved foolishly. The most asinine involved a college crew and the recurrent playing of the Go-Go's debut album. We wrapped towels around our heads, some boozy how I used the bath mat. Food has always caused me far more problems. 27 years prior and two years into Overeaters Anonymous, barely binging, I was normal weight and for the first time since I was 16, not counting every calorie I did or did not put into my mouth. I'd had two beers at a party and made an outreach call. It was easy sailing, getting sober, the writing of which makes me want to drink. Over the years, I attended a grand total of four AA meetings. I drank once, a year prior to our Asia trip. Out of the blue, a splash of Swedish bitters in sparkling water seemed the logical way to vivify the drudgery of cooking dinner, of being a housewife when... Before I'd had children, I'd had a job of not even being a good housewife. My pasta was always undercooked, the fish over, no delicious sea bass for you. Between that jigger of Swedish bitters and our Asia trip, I took not a swallow. Nevertheless, increasingly, alcohol was looking good. Despite bubbling my way through dinner prep, in my mind, I remained 27 years sober. Packing to leave Shanghai, I deliberated ordering a beer on the plane. Hell, I knew I was going to, in the same way that as soon as the tout buttonholed me, I felt like I was better than her. On no occasion had I come clean to anyone about sneaking the Swedish bitters. Drinking never comes out of the blue. Previous to Shanghai, my family spent three weeks in Japan. For the last two weeks of it, I yearned for beer. I told Cliff, Cliff is not an alcoholic. In a heartbeat, he offered to skip alcohol for the rest of the trip. Not having to watch him enjoy his drinks, my cravings tapered off. Packing and eating chocolates, I would not talk to Cliff to anyone about my involving plan to drink. On plane flights, I'm often seated separately from my family. Perhaps it's because my last name is Hall and our children have Cliff's last name, whatever. Flying home from Shanghai, the airline promoted me from sardine class to sardine plus. With dinner, I asked for a Heineken as if removing a Band-Aid. Gone in four glugs. Nothing drunk happened. I'd eaten too much. I thought about ordering a vodka but didn't want the flight attendants to think I was an alcoholic. <laughs> Gut already busting, I requested a second dinner, sardine plus and ice cream. This response to life was not unusual. I always binge. In fact, I never binged. I consistently overate. What I had not been doing was drinking. 14 hours after ordering a Heineken, we transferred planes in San Francisco. I wanted to get good and drunk. There was no doing it in front of my family. Our kids had grown up knowing Daddy sometimes had a beer. Mama liked tea. How wonderful, then, the way addictions dance in and out. I snuck two candy bars and a muffin the size of a grapefruit. Seventeen hours after I ordered a Heineken, we reached home. Even when an alcoholic stays sober, the disease progresses as if the body continued to drink. I kept myself up past Cliff, 
unpacking and checking emails so that I had something to do while I drank. Over the course of an hour, I knocked back more than I'd ever had in a sitting. Two shots of Glenmorangie Highland Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, two of Momokawa Organic Medium Rich Sake, and one more whiskey. My God, how writing this makes me want to drink. Back when I drank, I drank sake. The night of our return from Asia, I got no buzz off it. I drank the second little, little cup in hopes that I'd misdiagnose the first. Nope. Had the punch of Japanese food. Pass the whiskey. That in my life, I acted out more fully in my eating disorder does not make me one smidge less an alcoholic. 27 years prior, if I had ignored rather than accepted my alcoholism, I could have been drinking when we took our Asia trip, thereby allowing those frothy golden beers, the sake teenies, and luck-sounding plum wine margaritas. Come on, I would have gotten sober after the trip. Along those lines, in my 20s, why didn't I smoke myself thin on cigarettes? Sure, I would have had to quit eventually, regaining the weight plus some, which is what happens to bingers who smoke to lose weight. It only works for as long as it works. As the topic is now the what-ifs of life, instead of being married to Cliff and raising our children, thank you, goddess of mercy. Had I been functional enough to partner, I'd be divorced from some something addict or worse, stuck in that non-union, treating my children's lives as would a great white shark. Those predators eat their newborns should the babies fail to swim away immediately following birth. As for alcohol, in spite of the stepped-up cravings, I would never become one of those people whose lives would surely include ambulances, police cars, the first of the two replicas of Kuan Yin I bought in Shanghai is made of brass, a five-inch hand of the Buddha with a two-inch goddess of mercy held in his palm. The second is made of wood, the same red hue as that used for our kitchen cabinets. Kuan Yin's face is square round, as in mine. We share a double chin. Wood Kuan Yin seems at peace with her fat. In art, Kuan Yin often appears wrapped in white. The woman with the round glasses wore white. Both brass and wood Kuan Yin sit in lotus position. Brass places her hands one over the other face up at the base of her belly. This mudra, this hand position, is often called the om position. After my post-trip bender, in the face of months of daily cravings, I haven't had a single drink. I've attended one AA meeting. Never Overeaters Anonymous. My therapist said, why try to do this all by yourself? Wood Kuan Yin sits with only her right hand in Om. Her left arm bends at the elbow, hand at shoulder height. In her single Om hand, she holds what tradition would dictate is a bottle containing humanity's tears. My wood Kuan Yin's bottle is gilded. If I look at it every day, I am certain that I can stay sober all by myself. I am also again in loose denial about daily overeating. I weigh 196 pounds. Wood Kuan Yin's gilded bottle looks like fire.
You just listened to Goddess of Mercy, Quitting Time in Shanghai, written by Allie Hall. And we have Allie on the show today to talk about this story and her writing journey in general. Welcome to the show, Allie. Thank you so much for having me here. Glad to have you on. And as always, I am joined by the wonderful and dramatic and (laughs) I don't know what else. (laughs) Superb. Yes. Uh, co-host Melissa Collings. Do hey, go Melissa. on. Yes. <laughs> and my apologies in advance because this is an evening interview and I'm getting a little loopy already. So <laughs> that was It'll part either of the be plan. fun or a nightmare. Right, right, right. Great. <laughs> All right. So Allie, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, the first thing that we do is just have you give us a little bit of background about yourself. So to steal a line from Melissa Collings, who is Allie Hall? I love it. Uh, my middle name is Chava, so I publish under Allie C. Hall, um, okay. but you can find me at Allie Hall as well, because there aren't that many, spelled A-L-L-E. Right. I am a novelist and an essayist. I live in Seattle with my wonderful husband and our two just, I love them to death, sons. Uh, we have no pets because I'm allergic to everything on four feet. Aww. I know my kids would love a cat, but <laughs> um, let's see. I started writing when I lived in Japan in the late, very late 80s, very early 90s. Someone at the, an English language daily needed an article on Tai Chi, and she was going to interview me, but then she said, you should just write this article. So I said, sure. And she said, so you get $300. And I said, oh. yeah, so that's what I'm doing with my life. Yeah. So <laughs> it sounds good. I didn't realize how lucky I was, and I just stumbled into that career. And That's cool. Yeah, and it was easier in Japan because there are a limited number of people that are fluent in English. So uh, when I came back to the States, I found it much harder. But fairly soon, I was writing for um, Seattle Times and Seattle Weekly and in another tabloid called The Stranger. And it never really occurred to me to write a novel until it occurred to me to write a novel. And <laughs> and at that point, I was deeply into a healing journey from my uh, personal experience with surviving childhood sexual trauma. Mm. And uh, I never thought of writing a book about it, ever. Yeah. And then one day, I just had this idea for the plot, which was... Uh, teen who's being incested steals money runs away to asia that just makes sense because i'd spent i didn't say this three years living in asia Mm. traveling quite a bit and so i had all that great data i'll just call it like why would i set it in toledo or seattle right let's go to asia what you know yes right what you know and it's interesting and so that was sort of 1995 uh, it took me about seven years to write the book, and it took me another 23 to find a publisher. Wow. <laughs> I know. Yeah. This is a hard subject. It's a hard subject to sell. Yeah. So it was that. because of the subject, or did you, over the, was it like off and on where you were trying, or was it consistently I was over those? Pretty, I was very consistent okay. until my second child was born, at which point I completely lost it to postpartum depression. Oh. And I, I was like getting through the day, maybe brushing my teeth. Yeah. And, oh my goodness. Um, 
Yeah, it was really hard. Um, mm. Luckily, my children seems to have survived nicely. And That's good. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was my number one priority, and I couldn't fit writing in. And so when yeah. the younger child got into, I would say, third or fourth grade, I got my head back around writing and was able so you, to yeah. start submitting again. So you um, took a little bit of time off, so not a I consistent did. 23 years. Of, um, yeah, I would of... say there was a period of perhaps five to seven years in there where I couldn't do anything. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Goodness. No, Writing-wise. Yeah. You know, I was able to, like, get dinner sort of on the table. <laughs> we had a lot of burritos. <laughs> oh, you poor thing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of women go through it, and it's very hard, very hard. Yeah, I mean, it was thank so... you for being so open about it. I, know, I mean, I of course, that. yeah. Like Other you said, a lot of people learn. do, and they don't feel like they can share. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's a big deal that you're yeah. you're able to share and be open about that. Well, I think luckily, it helps I was in a lot of therapy for my childhood trauma issues, so it was yeah. just next. <laughs> yeah, Aww. you know, and um, incest survivors. I am an incest survivor. Um, mm. Have a very hard time with postpartum depression. It's just part of it for some yeah. reason. Um, huh. But in between all that submitting my novel, I did write a number of essays that got published, and I did a number of trips back to Asia. And so this essay that we're talking about, Goddess of Mercy, Quitting Time in Shanghai, uh, came out of my second to the last trip. The last trip I went was a research trip for my next novel. So I went. Oh, I just wow. went by myself, which was so exciting. Wow. Um, oh. I know. I was just like, why don't I do this? And my husband was like, you should just do this. Just go. That's I'll take great. care of the kids. Amazing. And then previous to that, we were in Japan for a month and then ended up in Shanghai for like five really hot days. It was maybe 105. It was incredibly hot. Oof. Yeah. It was wow. unbearable. And that probably lent itself to the crazy quality of the afternoon I described. So yeah, this is yeah. this is real life. This really happened. Oh, the essay that I write about is very real. Yeah, that ha that's nonfiction. When I first ah. read it, I didn't realize it was an essay. I didn't realize it was nonfiction. I thought it was a fictional story. Me too. Ah, well, would that it have been? <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> so so interesting that it is not fiction. That it is actually nonfiction. Amazing. Yeah. There are a lot of things that I choose to write about in nonfiction. But when you get to the actual data of my childhood sexual trauma, I keep that in fiction. Yeah, that's true. Because that it's just, sense. it's too personal. It really yeah, is. Yeah, of course. Personal. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. A way to get it out without delving too into really probably ugly places that, yeah. Yeah, it's an easy venue to take, I think. Not mm -hmm. easy. That's the wrong word. I don't think, I don't think when you're talking about that, it's ever easy. Yeah. I imagine that was very difficult, but an easier, easier route. Perhaps. It's also easier on the people that read the book because everybody, the f friends who have known me for 15 years are like, how fictional is this? Yeah, <laughs> they right. don't, they don't want to know what I went through. It's too painful. And oh, so if yeah. I can say it's fiction, yeah, then they all go, uh, yeah. Right. Oh, my goodness. But the funnier stuff with some serious um, underpinnings, I like to write about as nonfiction. The challenge in nonfiction is to see the arc of it without making the arc up. You have to really see yeah. that arc in life and be able to say, mm. okay, now I understand that lesson. Now I can I write like about that. this. Mm. Yeah. So, I yeah, I want to come back to that for sure because um, 
That's a technique. I like it. Mm-hmm. But so let's talk a little bit about this story then. So it's a personal nonfiction story. Yes. And it is from real events. I just would just say right off that I really enjoy kind of the almost frantic. Frantic's not exactly the right word either, but yeah, and there's really great pacing. Yeah, you know, I know what you're, you're talking about. It. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of energy, and you're like, oh, what's going to happen? Exactly. And you totally get you, you know, relate with the character very quickly. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So I guess just so, I, why did you decide to write about this one? Then maybe that will start with that. Why did I decide to write about this one? Because it occurred to me to write about it. That's <laughs> I. I have never made my money off of writing. I've always had a full-time job until I stayed home with our kids. I was lucky enough to be able to do that. Yeah. So I could pursue what I wanted. Um, I just, I tried sort of doing everybody's newsletter and making money that way, and I just didn't like it. And I wasn't very good at it. So I just resolved to make money, you know, the way you make money and write on the weekends and the evenings. And therefore Mm -hmm. I got to pursue what I wanted. And when a a situation like this presents itself, especially since I got out okay, it's just too juicy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are all kinds of perils, the what-ifs, the could-have-beens in this I story. St- I still feel sick when I think about it. I bet. I just think of myself in jail in communist <laughs> China, and I'm just like, uh, oh, my God, oh, my God. Yeah. That would have been awful. Tense. Yeah. yeah, so much for the essay, right? <laughs> <laughs> we would not be having this conversation. Would or it would I'd still yeah. be there. Yeah. Ooh. Or it would look very different if we, mm. if we were. <laughs> yeah. And then the underpinnings of how that triggered my various addictions, the shot. I think that manic sign of, not manic, I'm not manic depressive. I shouldn't like play around with that. But that frenetic quality is the quality of uh, whatever, a binge, you know, if you overeat, um, certainly shopping that high, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, and that, that it triggered my alcoholism. I really need to, to look at that because that had not been triggered in a long time. Interesting. Yeah, that is. That is. Now, this is a place where you had visited before. I had never been to China at all. OK, so this I'm thinking I'm confusing China and Japan on your trips. Yeah. So, trips. right. I lived in Japan and in my trips, I just never went to China. I always wanted to and I still do. But what I'd like to do is go to some like cool Chinese Tai Chi place in the mountain. You know, oh, I don't yeah. really want to travel around and see the Great Wall and stuff like that. I yeah, yeah. Not would just rather head stuff. up to the hills in a temple somewhere. So I have oh, to cool. find out a way to do that, not speaking any Mandarin or Cantonese. <laughs> I'll well, be working yeah. on that. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. Well, anything else you want to tell the, our listeners about this story before we move on to other questions? Huh, that's a great question. Yes, writing Asian people when I'm a white person was mm. I had so much trepidation about that. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to be respectful, but the character of the trout was kind of a, she's kind of a little nutty, you know? Yeah. Now yeah. she's like, takes her job seriously and starts screaming at me. And I certainly didn't want to come across as imperialist, let yeah. alone racist. Right. Yeah. So that was a challenge to, and the way I hope I dealt with it is the same way I deal with it in my novel is you try to make these people real. Yeah. 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 It's a little easier in a novel because you can just make stuff up and just apply it to them. 
Right. In real life, I had to find the parts of this woman who I did not enjoy hanging yeah. out with and yeah. make her <laughs> somehow real and compassionate. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And I mean, the way this story is told is told through facts. So I felt like I was there mm. and I felt like I was experiencing it along with you. And so in that way, I feel like you did a good job with not writing. Uh, what am I trying to say? The racism thing? Yes. Yes. Oh, that's and really I, good to I, hear. I feel like it, it was more experiential rather than like a storytelling where you're having to make somebody up if that makes sense sure yeah. right yeah or stereotypical and, or any of that exactly stereotypical. Yeah. and then also there are all those unconscious things that we have in ourselves because of the system mm -hmm. we're raised in yeah that if it comes out you're like "Ooh, yick that sounds a little at the least imperialistic but at the worst it sounds racist and i didn't even know i had that in me you know yeah. i just thought i was a good liberal <laughs> doing the right thing yeah. yeah and you never know how somebody's going to take something i was talking to a friend of mine today who's a writer and she had submitted something for reading and somebody thought it was racist and she couldn't believe that Ouch. that that had happened she thought how in the world you know that was not my intent and so you know it's funny how different people can take different things from a piece very interesting when you didn't mean it at all, which is great because we're mm. talking to you and you can kind of give us the, the background behind this. Mm. Well, my greatest fear about my novel is that people are going to be uh, offended or think, you know, just the, the fact of a white writer writing Asian people and the fact that, like, to write somebody, you need to understand their mind. I don't even yeah. speak Japanese that well. Yeah. And yeah. some of the characters are flat out Japanese. So what I tried to do is I based all the Japanese nationals on real people. Mm -hmm. I, I got to know them a little better in the writing, the people yeah. I made up about them, than I met the person in real life. But um, they had to be real to me. And then the, I felt more comfortable with the Asian American characters because... Mm -hmm. They're American. <laughs> they're just yeah, they're yeah. just American people who happen to have a different race, you know. So I could I could just I just understood those better, and I think I just felt more comfortable with that. Yeah, now that's in your book. You're saying yeah, the novel. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you also lived in Japan, though. I mean, so whether or not you spoke the language, you definitely were taking in, absorbing culture, yeah. seeing characteristics, attitudes. So surely that. And I, although Japan is obviously different from China, I mean, there's got to be some overlap and carryover and, you know, kind of use some of well, that. Well, most, most of current Japanese culture came from Han Chinese culture. I mean, the written oh, okay. language is a simplification of the old Chinese characters. Interesting. And then a lot of the, I mean, the cooking is very different than uh, Chinese cooking. I know that. But there's just a huge amount of Chinese influence in Japan. Sure, sure. Of course. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, this is very interesting. Before we leave the story, because uh, I know we, we've, we're we halfway done with the interview, I think, and we, have, we haven't, we haven't gone past it, so which, is, which is so funny. But I do want to ask, or at least draw attention to the fact that now I know that this is nonfiction, which is amazing. You were bold in this story. I mean, you I were was, scared, yeah. but you, you were bold. I mean, let's get real. So 
what was going through your mind at that moment where you're like standing up to people at a situation well, where it could get hostile? Yeah. Um, in, in the essay, I dis- discover how basically it is an imperial stance that I was taking of this isn't real. Yeah. You know, mm. this is like a movie. This is yeah. this is like fun. And then suddenly, <laughs> suddenly it wasn't. Yeah. You know, mm. suddenly she was much more serious about I need my money and like grabbing my hand. And then there were real live police officers there and a right. crowd. A yeah. crowd. Like who knew if somebody would hit me or throw something or just Phew. scream, you know, and yeah. in this situation where I literally know no nothing of either chinese language nothing right right yeah, yeah. so so i think the boldness was a little bit uh being an idiot and <laughs> a little bit like wanting the story i say in the beginning oh, oh my amazing. god the story is like much better than a yellow teapot <laughs> you know? yeah right that's right. what i'm really after when i travel what's the story i love i it. just didn't think of the um extended possible conclusion of this story yeah. right yeah I thought she'd be like, okay, upset, and then back down. And she did not. Phew. I think if it had been me, I would have probably been like, oh, you know what? Let me pay for it three times. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've done a lot of traveling being like on a very tight budget. You know, right now I'm older. I'm not on a super tight budget. I mean, I have to watch it, but, you know, paying an extra whatever, 40 or $50 if I was really in danger, I could totally do. But yeah. I have this history of like backpacking around and you bargain, you, whatever, you bargain your breakfast down from five rupees to three rupees because that's just right, what right. you do, right? Yeah. It's like a yard sale. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I could totally down. relate to the, what? It, what's what's the name? What did you call that person? A, the tout? A tout. Yeah, yeah okay. That's, that's the name of somebody who sort of, tries to you know make money off you basically when you're yeah shopping. yeah okay because i have done some international travel and experienced that and they can be super aggressive and you basically have to be mean you do sometimes in some cultures so but i related to that and i i will just say also that the story really draws you in pretty quickly with the whole bargaining and, yeah. and the tout and and your joy out of it and your guilt out of it. So anyway, I, I just thought it was very well done. It was. Thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. All right. Well, I did want to talk a little bit more about your writing professionally, sort of the nonfiction stuff. It sounds like you sort of you fell into it in a way. But tell us about that experience and maybe how that impacted your later novel and also fiction writing. Sure. So cut me off with a question if I've gone over this, but I was... <laughs> freelancing as a journalist and working like really bad jobs like reception, you know, whatever, waiting tables at banquets, just whatever I could do so that I could afford to freelance. And I one day had the idea. I just was filing away at one of these jobs that I did not like. And I thought, oh, you know, my parents had money, not tons of money, but they had money. Right. And, yeah. um, I wish I'd stolen it and run away. Now, <laughs> now kids who are groomed from the time they're, whatever, born, if their mm. parents are, a, one of their parents is a pedophile, you're not going to run away. It's just a part of your life. You just adapt. But yeah. someone who had started in their teens would have that facility because they would yeah. 
if they could tap into their anger about it and keep it together enough. So I just gave this main character those qualities. And I thought, boom, like it went boom, the whole plot, the whole opening really just went, steal the money, get to Asia, really have a hard time with addictions because that's what would come up if you were a trauma survivor. Yeah, You would definitely just, the trauma is gone, but you're going to recreate it somehow until you learn how to not. And I did uh, study Tai Chi in Thailand at on Kopangang in the, it was in the 89 or 90, I was there. And so I had that island very clearly. And it's, it's a beautiful place, just beautiful. And um, I loved it as a way to start the Tai Chi so that there are a lot mm. of travelers in and out and the main character meets um, a lesbian couple that say, come to Tokyo with us, practice Tai Chi. And so then the rest of the book is set in Tokyo. Hmm. Okay. Wow. Did that cover the question of how I wrote that? <laughs> well, I was looking more for not the novel so much, but your other writing. So your freelance oh. writing and your journey to that. So it sounds like you were kind of a starving artist in some ways, you know, just kind of trying to live the dream. Yeah, I really, I was committed to it. Um, at the same time, I was doing a lot of my recovery for my childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. And so I, I didn't want to be writing about that. I don't even journal. I'm just not that mm-hmm. kind of a person. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I sat down to write my novel, I had spent all this time doing nonfiction as opposed to fiction. And in the nonfiction, I was able to deal with like, this was my past, this is my present. Because in the essay, it's very nice to have that older narrator talking to the person not really Mm -hmm. talking to them but guiding that person going through whatever the experience of the essay is so that Mm -hmm. you can um gift the reader with wisdom around what's going on for that person even if you know the character of you in the essay who's 20 or 30 at the time doesn't get it i mean that makes for a good uh contradiction a nice yeah dramatic friction So I I kind of stumbled into writing personal essay, too. I was interning at a press in Seattle, a feminist press called Seal Press, which is still around, but it's left Seattle. And they did a lot of anthologies. So I was in one called The Unsavvy Traveler. (laughs) You can just imagine. (laughs) I wrote about being in Japan on a trip and hurting my foot at the very beginning and having to get around Japan like, with a real wounded foot and uh, it, it had to be funny it was tales of comic catastrophe yeah and and then another one i did was let's see i did one on jewish feminism i had an essay in there called it was uh yentl's revenge the next wave of jewish feminism talking about third wave jewish feminism mm. so i did a bunch of those and i found that i really enjoyed that that i had a non-fiction voice like you were yeah. saying you could hear it yeah. In the essay, because really, in the end, all a writer has to distinguish themselves is a voice, unless you're like kidnapped by space aliens or something that's <laughs> never happened before. It really comes down to how you say what you say. That's very yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. So what are you working on right now? Aha. Uh-huh. OK, so I'm working on what I would call a companion piece to as far as you can go before you have to come back, which is the novel mm-hmm. um, that I'm. And when you say companion piece, it's not a sequel, but it something is not that a complements. It T- complements. Tell us the difference. It. Well, I'm 
I just think of one of those yin yang signs, you know, like the circle yeah. with the dark on one side and the white dot, and then the white on the other side with the dark dot. Yeah. Everything leads to its um, opposite and then leads back. And so as far as you can go before you have to come back is about a young woman from a very difficult background who deliberately chooses the light. She has many chances to not, and she continues to, despite these wonderful and dramatic conflicts that I give her. I like that. And I, I understand that I have survived my childhood very well. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand why me. I just don't get it. I mean, I look around and I see homeless people on the streets. I run into people who have trauma written all over them. And I don't get why I get to be in this kind of healthy life mm -hmm. now. And they don't look like they're having that. Well, mm -hmm. So you, you don't know why. But can you tell us? And you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. Oh, I'm to. fine talking about it. But I think anybody who's in a situation like that or questioning, what do you think is that turning point for you? Like, how did you break away from right. that? Because, I mean, every time you're mentioning this, I am cringing inside oh. for you. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not not in a way where you should be, where you, I, I want to hear about it, you know, not right. where I'm saying, oh, I don't want to hear about it. But I'm just so horrified that you had to experience that. Well, that's very kind of you. Yeah. I think in... There was one time, and I set this up differently in the novel, but it definitely was my emotional experience where I was being abused. I was young, probably five, and I just went deep into myself. And I said, I'm out, like I'm going to die now. And there was this speck of life, of, of light, and this voice that said, no, you're not. You're going to keep wow. going. And so I associate that with uh, God. I don't really yeah. define mm. God, but, and it's not a he, definitely, but it's a, a source, you know, mm -hmm. of strength. And then later when I started to really deal with, I was in my 20s and I was really dealing with the intensity of what the abuse was and the effects on me. And I was uh, standing on a train station and the yellow train approached and there was something about that yellow train. I was just going to throw myself in front of it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow, wow. And I just thought, I live in a city. I take six trains a day. We can't be doing that. And so I left Japan and I went to an inpatient treatment center in Arizona called The Meadows. Mm. And there I got the tools that I needed to, uh, to get through this, you know, because I didn't need to go there to stop drinking or to stop smoking yeah. or anything. I was there to learn about how PTSD works, how it starts and how you yeah. get out of it. And in that way, having addictions was very helpful because you have an automatic path if you're willing to take one. There are a number out there. I did 12-step. Um, mm -hmm. And that really helped because then I had this circle around me of very supportive people, many who had been through this as well, because addictions yeah. are a, res a result of childhood trauma. Mm. I think you have part of your reason why right there, as when you said why you is because you, you went toward that light. And right. then you put in the effort to try to heal yourself. Well, and that's I'm not saying that other said, people yeah. don't do that. Well, but... some don't. I mean, some people don't yeah, have it's the true. mental sanity right. to do it. Some people go crazy because of this. And some and reasonably so, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And some people just, they just give up. And they're either committed or, sorry, content in whatever way to spend their life 
living in the past and yeah. living out that really difficult situation, mm-hmm. or they just die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the that's the worst part. So the to answer the question, the the second novel is about a young woman from a different but equally traumatic background, also backpacking around Asia, lands on the same island, Kopangang, in the Gulf of Thailand, and chooses to follow a much darker path. Ooh. Yeah, so that's why they complement each other. The yin and the yang. The yin Very yang, interesting. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, so tell us this book. Go ahead. Oh, I, I have, I have not. I'm on my second crappy draft, I would say, and I have to take a big break to spend a lot of time promoting the first novel as far as you mm-hmm. can go before you have to come back. And so, my head is all in that novel. I sat down yeah. to write the other day. I actually had some time, and I was like. I can't do it. Like, who is this yeah. person? Yeah, so, you still haven't right, finished right. with so the first. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully by midsummer I'll be back working on that, and then I'm guessing another year. Okay. Yeah, and then we'll see what happens with the publication. Now, yeah. is the you first never... one? How is it published? Is it published with someone? Did you self-publish? Yeah. Uh, literary writers, if they want to have a career, cannot self-publish. This is literary fiction, and as opposed to commercial fiction, which would be more uh, westerns or romances or mysteries, you know, Mm -hmm. people who self-publish those can find their readership. And for some reason, literary fiction writers cannot. There has never been a single literary writer who's jumped from self-publishing to traditional publishing. And since my heart was in being published traditionally, I just had to keep asking. So the press is called Black Rose Writing. Okay. And they took my book. (laughs) I know. Well, not only that, but it won an award, right? Uh, It has won, let's see, five awards for either the full book or excerpts from it. Nice. Um, And that was before it got published. It's the press, bless their hearts, nominated the novel for the National Book Award. Wow. wow. So I, I'm not really breathing until September when the long list comes out. Oh, <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah. I mean, you never think, oh, I'll win the National Book Award, unless you're maybe Barbara Kingsolver and you have that, you know, <laughs> solid history of right. winning major awards. But you can always hope, you know. Sure. Either way, even being yeah. nominated, that's a uh, huge that's a I was very, very flattered that they chose to yeah. do that. Yeah, that was really generous of them. Yes. Okay, so that's what you're writing. So clearly, literary is the way you go. What do you read? That's a great question. Usually people who write books don't read books unless they don't have kids. (laughs) (laughs) Really? There are only so many. I mean, I've done a lot of reading in my life, so it's not like I'm just writing. But right now, I've read a book recently called Uncultured, which is about, uh, it's a memoir about a woman who was in the, children of god sex cult and how she got out um i tend to like heavy literary fiction about women who come through something mm-hmm. yeah so that was the most recent but i would say i mean joan didion would be my favorite writer for essays i think she she's very famous mm-hmm. for a book called slouching toward bethlehem her most recent was the year of magical thinking which won kind of every prize I've out there i've heard of that one at least yeah yeah, yeah. and she's mm-hmm. just she just her sentences are just better than everybody else. Just, <laughs> she's just better. <laughs> and who knows why? She started writing when she was in her 20s, and she was writing for big name you know, New York magazines in the 60s. 
and she was just good at that age. I think for fiction, I would have to say Toni Morrison. I think what mm. she can do with a plot and just rhythm in her sentences and how that drives the plot and interesting characters. And she's very bold. She was writing about female or you know, child sexual abuse in 1970 about black girls. Like who was reading anything about black girls in 1970, let alone their incest background. So yeah, yeah so that's The Bluest Eye. And that's probably my favorite book out there. Wow. Yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful. Do you remember the first book that made you cry? Old Yeller. <laughs> Me too. <Aww. laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. Where the Red oh. Fern Grows. Where the Red Fern Grows. <laughs> uh, same it's like same thing, there. death of dog, like sad. <laughs> um, but that was uh, really, I think I really resonated with the kids in that book. And mm -hmm. then their dog was, their dogs were very real to them. Mm -hmm. And I, like I said, not around dogs very much because of my allergies, but I really, I really felt that book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, Melissa, do you have anything else you want to? Yeah. Before we get a, to our last question, um, what do you, we've talked a lot about your writing. What mm. do you do when you're not writing? What are your hobbies and enjoyments? Uh, well, I would call Tai Chi an enjoyment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You it's not a hobby because I'm more committed than hobby. Okay. Um, so it's a serious practice. It is a practice, yeah. And right now I'm healing from a knee thing. I had a, oh. I tore a meniscus, ugh, so then I had Oof. a surgery. So it, I'm up to doing sort of five minutes a day, but it's been since September since I've been able to really practice, and I miss it. It's really a, it's a emotional bomb. It's exercise at the same time, bonus. And it's something you can do as you age, which I am doing. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all? I Aren't know. We all? Like, we'll get through this, I hope. <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, having, I would say that community is my other enjoyment. I have a strong, strong Jewish community, not particularly religious, but just really like being Jewish. And yeah. so... That's really important to me. And so like, and also it was good for my kids. They grew up, I mean, I think they were five or six before they realized that most people weren't Jews <laughs> because most of our friends, you know, and the people that came right. over for Shabbat dinner and stuff like that. And I've, uh, that has shifted a little. I, again, kids, you just can't have 24 people over because they have kids too. And so you have a hundred people at your house and it doesn't Right, work. right. Right. So, but now that our kids are starting to go to college, we're starting to have larger groups again. Hmm. Um, you know, so that's, that's, nice. that's really nice. Yeah. yeah. That's a, so you're a social person then. Can't you tell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're a natural. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. No, people have always fascinated me and inspired yeah. me and given me tons of energy too. That's great. So you are an extrovert. Yeah, you get your energy from people. Yeah, definitely. Hmm. Well, are you submitting stories to lots of other places? Like are you, your essays, I guess I should say? I am out of things yeah. that I can submit. Um, oh, wow. I, just, I have just gone through the stack and they've mostly gotten published and I'm not really writing essays right now. I'm more focused on long form fiction. So yeah. Um, this, the piece that you chose, Goddess of Mercy, mm -hmm. was the first essay I had written 
in quite a few years. Yeah. Um, wow. But I'm having ideas now for articles, you know, journalism. Yeah. So I right. might, I might be able to go back to that if I can find people to publish it. The newspaper industry has tightened up a lot yeah. since I was publishing, and people I know in the editorial staff have moved on, and so I'm yeah, kind of at the very beginning again. Right. Oh, wow. Well, there are a lot of online and magazines. I mean, plenty yes, of magazines yeah. that have long stories. So I think yeah, uh, exactly. That's good. And and let me ask this. I'm just curious. So why did you decide to submit to us? I loved the idea that you would do the piece itself, that it would be read out loud. I think that's um, what a joy to be able to read yeah. your work and just rare. Yeah. Even when yeah. you do readings, you get to do just a snippet because nobody can sit for 25 minutes and watch it right. read. It's just not very <laughs> dramatic. Right. Yeah. So, but, you know, and then I get the interview to talk about it as well. Yeah. Okay, good. I appreciate that. I was just curious because um, that's not a question we've ever asked anybody. And Yeah, that's good. I thought it might be good to um, let people hear about it too. Mm. Yeah, Thank like you. why you choose to submit to certain places is... Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you submit to the New York Times, everybody knows why you submit to the New York Times. Right. You want to be yeah. in the New York Times, right? But in um, places that, you know, aren't the New York Times, which is... <laughs> which we definitely are not. Yeah, but like... <laughs> so close, though. <laughs> so close. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, everything but one place is the New York Times. So right. you can be, um, you know, you. I've worked hard and I have a, I have a bit of a resume going. And so I can be a yeah. little more choosy about where I want to submit things now. Yeah. I love right. that. I think it's a great question. It makes me wish that we had asked that of everyone. It's because yeah. I love question. this format. You know, it, I think it's a big draw, the format of having your piece able to be read, to listen to, and then you get to talk with the author. So great. Yeah. So great. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, we're just glad that you all are submitting and we're getting such great stories. So, all right. We probably should wrap it up here and get to our last question. I'm going to throw that over to Melissa to let her put that one out there. Yeah. So we, we love asking this question and no pressure, but it's been different, I think, for every single person who's answered. So hope you've listened to them all <laughs> and um, can give us a unique piece of information here. So if you could share with our listeners a piece of writing advice or a resource for new and aspiring writers or something that you wish that you would have known when you were starting out. It would be twofold. It would be never give up and expect mm -hmm. the miracle. Oh, I like that. Wow. It's... Expect the miracle. I love it. I That's like actually that from my novel. <laughs> Is it oh, really? Yeah. yeah. But someone did say that to me. I was going to this Tai Chi place for uh, five weeks in Thailand, and I had no idea what was going to happen, right? I didn't know, would I meet somebody? Would I not meet somebody? Would I like this place? Um, what would this mm. island be like? And she just gave me a hug and said, expect the miracle. And mm. yeah, and if you do, you're much more likely to run into it fairly soon. That is terrific. I, I love it. love that too. And I love that we're <laughs> ending on that because that gives me like a boost. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm glad to hear that. Well, I hope, <laughs> I hope your listeners get the same sense of like, I can do that. I can expect the miracle. It doesn't have to be a religious miracle. In fact, mm -hmm. it, it's not for me. It's just a miracle. Well, you're a miracle in my oh, eyes. I mean, um, yeah, for, for real. Sure. 
the for experiences sure. that you have gone through, your writing journey, you know, getting it out there, just this whole, you're just amazing. So I yes. am grateful to learn all about, I mean, you sent information in your background materials after we accepted the piece, but I had no idea that uh, this was you, so. Right. Well, now you've made me cry just like the red fern grass. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love That's that. That's great. Well, hey, maybe we can chalk this up to our, the first show we've ever made anybody cry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure that there are you others. know of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, of oh, our shows, right. I mean. Maybe they listened to it and was like, oh, I hated it. Oh, that's true. You're right. Made them cry happy tears. Yes. Happy tears, definitely. That's right. Yeah. Happy tears. Well, thanks for having me. This yeah, thanks so much for coming on. It's been yeah. great to have you on the show. And again, we're so happy that you submitted. Exactly. And I just have to say one more time, thank you for being so open and mm-hmm. for providing us with the story behind the story. It's a big deal. And uh, I just, I'm very appreciative of it. I think when we can open up our worldview and hear what you have to say you're enriching us all so thank you so much well it's absolutely my honor and my pleasure thank you thank you very much for listening we hope you enjoyed the show if so please do us a huge favor and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app also be sure to tell your writer friends ratings and word of mouth are our best tools for expanding the reach of the magazine and podcast. The Story Discovery Podcast is a free narrated podcast of works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you're feeling extra generous, you can support us at patreon.com slash onyxpublications or buymeacoffee.com slash onyxpublication with no S. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poems for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.